Coming up, lighting design hacks for the budget-minded haunter. Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the Haunted Attraction Network podcast, we bring Halloween to you every weekday. We have news on location coverage and interviews from experiences around the world. Outside of this podcast, we have videos, education, and even events. On Fridays, we cover the business side of Halloween. If that's not your thing, check back in our feed as we released plenty of other episodes this week. If you have a specific question about starting or growing your haunt, you can join our Facebook group. It's called Haunter's Toolbox, and you can ask any question there. We have a great group of community members that will help you get the answer that you need. One of the subjects that has come up recently in our group is lighting design for your haunt. So today, we're covering tips and tricks to make effective designs with what you already have at your haunt. Today's show is actually taken from a class we did at Haunt Connect and HauntCon last year, and it breaks down lighting terms and concepts for you. Julia from Gantam Lighting and Controls led this panel discussion, and right now Gantam is offering free consultations with Julia where you can ask her your specific questions for this year. You can sign up for a 30-minute chat at gantam.com slash demo. That's gantam.com slash demo. Okay, here we go. My name is Julia Warren. Uh, I have worked in lighting for the themed entertainment industry for like um, many years, uh, eight, eight-ish years. Um, and uh, I've done everything from, you know, theater to permanent architectural to seasonal to anything in between there. Uh, and right now I work for Gantam uh, and I help uh, specify product and uh, train people on how to use our products as well as doing system design and a little bit of uh, support for integration. So that is me. And I have three guests with me today who will tell you about themselves. Great. Uh, hi, my name is Daniel Berger. I'm a senior designer with LightSwitch. <clears throat> I've been doing lighting design for about 14 years. Um, started out in theater, as did most people who do lighting, I think. And um, uh, so went from theater to uh, working with LightSwitch and doing a lot more architectural installations, uh, theme parks, a uh, few haunt experiences, um, museums and that kind of thing. Um, and still going on with that. So that's me. Hey guys, uh, my name is Jesse Scott, and uh, I had my start in theater, like Daniel said, well, start in lighting doing theater, uh, and no, yeah, pretty much, um, and a good chunk of that was also doing like um, concert design and uh, with like live music and things, um, then sort of transitioned into starting to do some architectural design with LightSwitch. Um, the big part of like what I do at LightSwitch is some of the R&D um, with like 3D printing and developing uh, products and things like that. But yeah, um, themed entertainment pretty much is uh, the name of the game and what we're, what we're always doing. So that is I. That brings it to me. Hey there, folks. My name is Andrew Schmedeke. My biggest connection to the haunt industry is that I lit uh, the 2014 iteration of the Scarehouse out in Pittsburgh. But in the five years since then, I've moved to Los Angeles and I'm now a freelance line designer doing, still doing theater, unlike these folks, but as well as a variety of things along the lines of concerts, events, and more importantly to this panel, I do a fair amount of work in terms of exploratory immersive environments and experiences. Awesome. So cool, cool range of experience here to talk a little bit about what we do um, <laughs> in the field. 
and, and if you're someone who identifies as a lighting designer and has loads of experience doing this, we welcome you here too. We've got some uh, time at the end to talk about sort of feedback from the field. So we'd love to hear some of your thoughts and experiences as well. Um, Philip, how are we doing with a potential poll? The poll is up. If you guys want to vote on it while we're continuing the presentation, then when everyone, when we have a majority filled out, then we'll okay, cool. share the results. Sweet. Thank you. Um, so we are going to dive in um, and talk a little bit about, we've got some key focuses on um, sort of some methodology and how to think about light and darkness. Uh, we've got some talking about uh, how to use what you already have to sort of enhance your lighting experiences. We're going to talk a little bit about control and different tools for controlling your your lighting for your experiences and we're going to talk a little bit about how to uh, sustain your lighting design over time so without further ado uh, jesse you want to tell us a little bit about lighting and lack thereof the lack thereof yeah so one of the most fundamental uh things of lighting design is is the absence thereof and finding a way to uh, impact your space uh, with light, but also finding places where you don't light. Um, like one of my favorite uh, analogies of like using light to to point people in the right direction or or whatever is is comparing it to the the job of the movie editor, where you know if you the movie editor has thousands and thousands of hours of, of footage to like pull from and, and find the right key frames for. You are trying to, as a line designer, you're trying to basically take the entire room that you are in and find the most important things and, and try and tell the story that you are, that you are intending to tell. Um, and so if you can basically cognitively put those things in, into the world with light or, you know, the absence of light, uh, that's just a, a, a really, well, it, it helps tell that story essentially. Um, and I'm actually gonna refer to this photo over here for a second over in the corner. Um, uh, one really nice thing that the, we've done in this photo over here is uh, there is like some little breakup patterns in, in the lighting itself, which tells its own like small story like in the background, there's there's places where there is light and there's places where there is some sort of like jagged of negative spaces in the light. And that, that sort of helps tell some sort of textural story of where the light is coming from. Um, just like small little things like that can can make the world a difference. Um, jumping up to this next, the the topic just above that, the, the transitioning from the outside world. Um, that's one thing to be pretty cognizant of is like where are your actual guests coming from uh, when they're coming into the experience? Like for instance, Julie was telling me about this one time uh, where she was doing a haunt and everyone was, it was like a haunt that was during the day. So everyone was coming in at like noon time, walking into the space. And so some of the first uh, rooms that they had in their haunt were quite bright just to allow people to sort of transition into the space and just allow their eyes some time to adjust. And not to say that you always have to do that or that's something that is required by any haunt. It's, it's really just a matter of you want to make sure that that is something that you are 
aware of that, that people do take a moment to to ease in to the lighting levels and perhaps you want to take advantage of that like maybe you you, know, you do have a really really bright space in one room and then the next space is completely dark and you don't want the you want to give them sort of a shock of uh, the senses there like because what, what one thing that is incredibly important you know with lighting in general is that you want it to be sort of a uh, a psychological attack of the senses you know if, if you can manipulate the lighting in such a way that you are um like creating creating darkness in important places and, and light in other important places you are basically able forcing your guests to reach out with other senses and and figure out what exactly is happening in this room before they get scared or, or whatever. Uh, and so that can be a really fun thing to play with. Um, uh, to the last point on this slide, uh, because lighting is such, plays such an important key in the focus of your room, it is uh, sort of a nice thing to, to think about how um, the flow of the room happens. Um, so how people get from point A to point B and where the focus is to allow people to know where the point B is in any situation. Sometimes it's nice to pull focus to certain parts, parts of the room just so that people know where the flow actually does take them eventually. Um, or to send them in that direction as, as oh, a ruse, yeah. right? right? And then have something pop out from somewhere else. I mean, I, I think most hunters are familiar with that, but still that's... <clears throat> you do that by forcing people to look in a certain direction. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Pulling that focus to, to get that scare in. Definitely. Also touching on real quick, if I can, um, uh, the sort of like shock effect you can have with light. Um, I just, uh, a case study that a lot of people watching might be really familiar with that I think is brilliant. So kudos to the designers. Um, scary farms, uh, Oh my gosh, I'm going to get it wrong. Paranormal Inc. Maze. Uh, the last couple of years, the moment where you transition from the dark, scary mystery of where are you to you're sort of transported back in time. And I just, that moment where you're going from the dark into this brightly lit room is so impactful. And I remember the first time I saw that, I just paused and I was like, whoever did this, great job. I am so disoriented. I don't know what's going on. I'm more scared now that I'm in this bright room than what I was when I was in the darkness. So you can definitely play on levels and really get people focused. It's like, on... it's, it... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like you're taking people's sense of awareness, right? And, you know, in a dark space, it's like really wide because people are scanning and then you force them into a bright room. So you get this like effects on, you know, on people's senses that makes them like, you know, it's jarring to yeah. go from yeah. being really sensed out to, whoa, bright space. And now you're like, you see, you see everything. And now you're really, um, you're focused like right here. Yeah. Especially if you've stepped people <clears throat> down to that level of darkness. Cause the beginning of that particular maze is pretty bright, all things considered. And so we've been gradually stepped down without us realizing to that level of darkness only to be brought way back up. Um, so yeah, definitely think about your levels um, in your spaces. Uh, I think something that, that we should touch on real quick is just the, the importance of um, planning lighting 
from the very beginning stages, not just the design team, but with the, with the director of the attraction and trying to figure out um, how to make lighting uh, a part of the story, not just something that gets put in at the end. Um, that doesn't, that's not necessarily to say that Jesse wasn't making that point, but like that just reinforces all of it. Right. Is that um, starting from the very beginning planning stages with lighting will help tell the story in, in a lot of different ways. And we'll, you'll find it will be a huge problem solving uh, tool in, in a lot of instances with figuring out scenery as well. Absolutely. You can hide your crimes very well with correct lighting. <clears throat> I mean, just from a philosophical standpoint, you should be considering where you want your patrons to be looking, how they're going to go ahead and path through an attraction. And thinking about where they want to look is going to be your first guideline to how to go ahead and think about lighting your attraction. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Cool. And if anyone has questions about this, we can totally talk about this towards the end of our presentation today. Um, but now we're going to talk a little bit about tools that you already have that can help really enhance your lighting design. So Andrew's going to talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So what you may already have in your haunts are a variety of things that we're going to go ahead and qualify into either practical or theatrical fixtures. And by that, I mean practicals being lamps you might have, actual light bulbs, Christmas tree lights, things like that. And theatrical fixtures are the more of the professional grade sort of spotlights. Those would be your Gantam fixtures or your nano spots. And so we've got to think about how can you take your practical fixtures or your existing home grade fixtures and actually get the controllability that we get out of professional fixtures. The big thing that you think about is directionality. How can you go ahead and actually point that light to the right place to create the shadows that Jesse was talking about to have areas that are more lit versus areas that are less lit. And so one of the ways to start thinking about doing that is how can you go ahead and shade off part of a, a light bulb or go ahead and paint one side of it so that you don't have light going to the wrong part of the room. You can also go ahead and start thinking about where do you put your practicals as a way to pull focus. A light source doesn't just need to be something that casts light. It can be an actual candle in a room, for instance, that'll be your point to look at that's going to help guide audience and patron focus. Uh, in a theatrical workflow, we go ahead and control stage lights by actually dropping in color media, dropping in templates and things that lets you go ahead and actually shape what is going to come out of that light. You can go ahead and actually put, for instance, in this image here, you can see you can create a shadow just by obstructing part of the beam from a spotlight. And you can do similar things when you're thinking about where do you put your light in relationship to your props and your scenery and your set dressing. If you put a light behind a tree, for instance, you're going to have your own natural pattern of leaves in the floor. And so you can start thinking about how can I go ahead and put my lighting in relationship to the other objects in my room to go ahead and create things like pattern, create things like color, for instance, light coming through stained glass is going to create different colors than just a light bulb in a room, for instance. But on the actually theatrical side, you can go ahead and actually use colored things. I'm sure I know the Gantam comes in a variety of RGB sources. The nano spot line comes in a variety of different colors too. And that gives you the controllability in terms of what kind of fix you place somewhere. But you've got the ability to go ahead and actually curate your own design by taking lights and then manipulating the environment around them to go ahead and actually create specific colors, specific patterns, and things that will support what you're working on. And the most basic way to do that, beyond just, for instance, putting color media out there, is just thinking about what is the color of the light bulb in this light that I'm going to drop in here. Say you're doing a domestic environment, you've got a, an end table lamp somewhere. You've got a whole range of warm white to cool white grade light bulbs you can buy at Home Depot that'll give you very different effects depending on what you're looking to go for. If you're looking for a more sterile, scary, sort of hospital institutional environment, go with a cool white light bulb. If you're looking for something that's going to meant to be more domestic, maybe go with the warmer side of things. And that's just one of the most basic ways to go ahead and start curating how your light fixtures will start to render the environment around you. 
Yeah, and it's kind of important to note, like, e- even just starting with warm or cool, like, if you're, you know, some of you are buying uh, lighting fixtures online, or some of you are renting fixtures, or some of you are going to Home Depot. Um, and, you know, you can still start with a warm or a cool color source, even when going to Home Depot. Um, there are those kinds of options there. And then once you get yourself to that color range, then manipulating it from there is easier. It's harder to take a warm light and make it cool than it is to take a cool light and make it cooler. Um, and the other thing I was just was grabbing some, you know, <laughs> templates that oh, I had here. Uh, of course, crap. this is Christmas. Christmas of course he's got to go go in the house. Uh, this is, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is literally the bag of, of Julia's gobos. Um, so, uh, but anyways, I mean, like this is just a snowflake gobo, but you know, and this particularly works with a, with an ellipsoidal spotlight, um, that is meant to focus at a certain plane and then project this pattern onto a surface. Um, but the point of this is to say that you can get a lot of these, uh, stock images available from certain companies. You can also, uh, buy them custom. You can make your own designs uh, from companies like Roscoe or Apollo. Um, and there's also a handful of other like do, you know, smaller companies that do a lot of custom gobos themselves. Um, and they come in a variety of sizes. So uh, different size fixtures have different size gobos. Uh, even Gantam has really uh, tiny gobos. I think they're M size. Um, and, and that's just one tool. Um, you can also shape light by, you know, like making your own like barn doors essentially around the light and that help like cut the shape into, you know, a rectangle or, um, see, I came with, I came with things. Where did you get all these props? Well, actually, so <laughs> my boss, these. my boss Warren was uh, playing with the laser cutter the other day and he started making um, like little, this is, I, I literally want to call this like a uh, tie defender, but anyways, um, <laughs> so this is like, uh, this is actually designed to be like a ring, trim ring for a Gantam 7. Oh. So, uh, doing this the wrong way, but if we put this magnetic ring here, so now we've got like this little barn door and you can bend this into shape essentially to cut down the light source. Okay. Of course, he, was, he gave me this one that had like several wings, which makes it a little difficult, but... The point is, is that you can use this to sort of, once it's bent into place, make a much smaller shape for the light. Um, you can also do this, I mean, you can do this with black wrap, which is probably how I would choose to do it and not that, but um, I don't have any aluminum here at home. foil. Or even aluminum foil, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different really cheap ways to go about uh, shaping light. Um, I, and I mean, also like all of this honestly started with lights in a coffee can. So, I mean, um, yeah. y- there's a lot of variable ways that you can go about uh, shaping light uh, that are cheap or expensive. Yeah. Jesse, do you want to talk about uh, your homemade gobo? <laughs> oh yeah. So this is actually my photo down in the bottom corner. Um, and basically it is just a, a Coke can that I have, you know, cut the tops and bottom off of, flattened out the the sheet aluminum or tin, whatever it is. Um, and I, I just cut this stencil out. It was for a production of Peter Pan. So that's the shadow that's going to be projected onto the floor. Um, but, you know, creating, you don't have to necessarily purchase all of your own templates um, to create all these shadows. Like one, uh, 
basically how, how I was able to achieve this was I, we took a photo of the actor, um, scaled it down to the size of an actual gobo. Um, and I printed the photo out, pasted that or taped it onto um, uh, the actual stock aluminum there and just very carefully scored and scored and scored and scored. And it took a very long time, <laughs> a very long time to make something this intricate. It took a while um, because you can't just hack through it, you know. Uh, but so that's an option for you. If you want to make things that are intricate like this, it's absolutely possible. Um, it is but, It is worth noting that it really depends on the heat source, right? It really depends on the fixture that you're using. So if you've got an incandescent heat source that's really hot, something like aluminum foil probably isn't going to last very long. It's going to, you know, it's going to break down pretty quickly. Well, this is an LED source would work well for that. For this, yeah. I mean, the, but this was also, um, this was in an incandescent source uh, and it ran for like 30 something shows really, really, really quite well. We ended up making two of them, like one for a follow spot and one for a light itself. And uh, yeah. Cool. Um, but I think the difference between like aluminum foil would be like, yes, that would be quite flimsy. But this is from a, you know, uh, a Coke can, which still very sure. flimsy. <laughs> but it, it did hold up. And, but your, your breakups could be as simple as just making a similar circular template, punching some holes into it just to create some, some shafts of light. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. Um, and there's no need to, let's see, just one quick, we have a, um, a, a question from Donna Summers about the size and the distance. Um, yeah, the, so the size of the gobo um, will actually, and the size of the pattern of the gobo will affect a little bit how, how much it spreads out, but a, a good deal of that is also affected by the actual beam angle of the light itself and of course, distance plays uh, a pretty good role in that, but you sort of have to think about how the cone of the light actually spreads out over a distance. And so, yes, it does affect it. Um, and there are certain calculations that you can do to do that, but there's, in an instance like this, I, it doesn't feel like it's that super necessary, especially if you're just trying to find some texture in the space. But yeah. <laughs> Julia, you're muted. See that now. Yeah, we'll be checking out the Q and A in the chats also at the end. Um, we've got some some feedback time there, but uh, yeah, feel free to send in questions as we go. Um, yes, and I think we'll we'll probably talk more about this later, especially. Um, but we will move on for now. Um, also, for the record, that signal, the physics don't actually work. That signal is not a real thing. For those of you who wonder, okay. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about control and, uh, ways to make your experiences a little bit more dynamic. Um, I know there's a lot of folks who sort of immediately sort of pull back when they hear, you know, the words, the word DMX, uh, and, and I totally get that it's, it's a wild and crazy thing that a lot of people study their whole lives just to, to understand. But, um, but I don't want you to be intimidated by DMX. It can be your friend. Um, but there's also, there are ways to get effective, dynamic, uh, even interactive lighting experiences without using DMX. Um, so uh, first, of all, first of all, sort of touching back on what we just talked about, there are a lot of ways to manipulate the light um, using stuff uh, that is not even on the light. So shining the light 
through things. Um, if you're worried about, uh, you've plugged a light in, you've no way to dim it, anything you shine that light through before it gets to wherever you want it to hit is gonna cut that light. Um, so I know like in theater applications, people actually will put like a gray plastic film in front of the light and that's how they're dimming it because they don't, basically they're plugging the light in and the only control they have over the levels is how much they're cutting the light by shining it through something else. Um, so if you've got a light that you want to be really dim, try just putting set pieces or props in front of it. And even if you have like a moving piece um, that can go in front of the light, that is one way to create dynamic shadows without needing any sort of external control. Um, you're just using what you already have to manipulate your light source. Um, there's also a lot of fixtures nowadays that have some sort of onboard programming and playback capability. Um, I personally love using the Color Piano, which is a teeny tiny little uh, RGB spotlight um, that has uh, the capability to store two shows on board. Um, and you just program all of that from your phone. Uh, you plug it in and you, you sort of look at it and figure out what your effect is, and then it will loop that. And then if you have some sort of triggered response that you want uh, to have like a show moment, you can program a second show and then it will play that back. Um, so that's a fantastic solution. If all you have is one 20 amp circuit and no data, you can pull off an entire two show experience with this light that has onboard storage. So there are solutions like that out there that I encourage you to, to look for and lean into. Um, the Precision DMX also has some onboard kind of uh, uh, color and uh, like flicker effects that you can load to them and they will play that back without needing a DMX signal. Um, there are also a lot of um, products available, especially in the Hunt community, where you can program shows from your computer that will basically convert that to a signal that streams out of a replay or a playback device. So I know Boobox and the director software is like a really good solution if you want that sort of dynamic show programming, but do not have the infrastructure or the sort of capabilities for DMX. Uh, so definitely look into those options. They're way easier and more accessible than, than you'd think. I am a lighting designer and I've used all of the complicated systems, but I still love Boobox because it's intuitive and it's accessible um, for anyone. Um, and then if you do wanna use DMX or if you have DMX capabilities, uh, which I definitely encourage you to check out because there are ways to have DMX without uh, breaking the bank or even investing in an entire new system. Uh, a lot of the major consoles have on PC or online um, versions of their controllers that will output data. Um, a lot of systems output what's called ArtNet, which is like a slightly modified signal that you can convert to DMX um, with just like a little interstitial component. It's a really great solution if you want to have some DMX control, you want to try out a controller, but you don't want to spend the money on renting or buying a controller. So I listed a couple of them here, definitely check it out. And then there are some other smaller modules um, that can play back a show if you stream DMX to it. So like the DMX uh, or the Darkbox replay from Gantum, uh, Q server is a good option. If you want to have those sort of stored cues to be playing back during the run of your experience, 
those are some really good options to tap into. Um, yeah, and this, uh, the image here is just an installation that used color piano because it's literally made of ice. And uh, the people we were working with said, we can run one low voltage power connector to your fixtures and that's all we can fit in the ice without messing up the integrity of the structure. And I said, deal, but I still want a dynamic show. So that was, that was how we pulled that off. Um, and I know the, the four of us here have all been in situations where we've had everything from state of the art systems to uh, here's the existing system that was installed with the facility. It's from, you know, you know, the 1990s and make it work. We want a new show. So there's definitely a lot of ways to get control in dynamic shows um, with a variety of tools. I don't know if y'all have. I mean, if you find yourself in a situation where you're able to go ahead and implement a DMX system, I think one of the biggest perks to that is actually being able to have a wireless network that lets you access your lights while you're walking through your attraction and then control them on your phone. Instead of having to go ahead and program the show from somewhere remotely where you actually have a control surface, you can set up a Wi-Fi network, use a, a, a piece of software on your phone and go through and set each individual room's look as you walk through live and you're actually experiencing the same thing as your patrons. That's one of the major perks of moving to a network DMX infrastructure for me. Totally. Not to mention that you can take the time and actually like pre-program it before you even get to site. Um, it takes a little bit of imagination, but um, there's, you know, certainly pre-planning -pre and pre-programming can save a lot of time on site. Totally. Cool. I might let us move along. I'm keeping an eye on the time, which I want to respect everyone's time. So we're going to jump into uh, our last topic, which is how to make your lighting sustainable. And Daniel's going to tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So um, obviously, uh, one of the, you know, over the last 15 years, 20 years, the industry's transitioned from incandescent sources uh, to LED sources um, allows you to save a lot of money in the long term. It won't feel like it up front because LEDs cost more. But um, if you're planning on using the same gear uh, from year to year, uh, LED lights are going to last you a number of years. Uh, whereas, you know, fixtures with incandescent sources, you may have to replace their lamps uh, several times throughout a run of a show. Um, so that is one way to, to sort of plan how your expenses are for, for an attraction and uh, budget accordingly uh, with taking, in the taking into account uh, plans for the future. Um, it also generates a lot less heat um, and uh, really gives you, I mean, in many cases, you're going to be able to find um, RGB fixtures or RGBW fixtures, uh, which certainly more expensive than incandescent, but allow you to change colors on the fly if you have a controller um, and allows you to sort of not have to worry about um, purchasing ahead of time uh, desired colors from, from Roscoe or, or Apollo. Um, so that's one way. Um, things that you want to keep in mind, I think, are um, how to sort of set up your installation so that it's easily maintainable and um, easy to install and strike and keep reusing. I know that um, a lot of uh, even temporary uh, like con attractions tend to hardwire a lot of things, or you get a fixture and you just sort of like cut off the end um, because you don't know what's on site. And so you're just going to go ahead and like wire things on site. Um, I, I would say that taking the time to connectorize things appropriately ahead of time so that they're easily plug and playable is, is going to save a lot of time. 
Um, certainly going with a low voltage solution uh, that's connectorized is also going to not just save on electricity, but um, makes, makes things a little bit safer in the field. You're not, if, if you're dealing with low voltage fixtures, um, that will really reduce uh, the danger of, of people accidentally getting shocked or if, even if they do get shocked, it's a small shock, but uh, reduces the need for um, trained electricians necessarily to be working. That doesn't mean you don't want trained electricians, just that um, you don't necessarily need an electrician to work with uh, low voltage uh, items. Um, so especially when it comes to, to the connectors, um, having things connectorized, when you go to strike an installation, it means you're not, you know, cutting and wasting a lot of material and then having to redo your work the following year. So I think that that's just um, having a plug and playable uh, system is going to be really good for, you know, setting up a show quickly and striking it quickly. Um, and I, I mean, if you're doing a show that is going to last several years and you might have little changes here and there, and if you are going to have a DMX system, um, making sure to sort of keep an institutional memory by having the same show file. Even if you're floating from different designers, the company should keep its own show files and uh, give them to new designers as over the years and catalog those shows because I think that they're good reference tools um, either for the same attraction or even um, for if you have a new attraction and you want to use a lot of the same programming tools. It's not just the, the cues themselves, but uh, the way that a show file is set up um, and, and preventing from having to set up a new show file year after year. Obviously, designers will come in um, and kind of have their own preferences, but I, I guess what I'm speaking to is if you don't necessarily have, um, if you're not necessarily bringing in a different designer every year, um, that it's good to kind of have a show file for your, for your attraction that you can use year after year. Um, Am I missing anything on this list? I don't think so. Yeah. And we can talk more about it too. Um, I think I think we're at a point where uh, maybe we can move to uh, looking at some of our questions that have been submitted and check out yep. uh, some of the comments people are giving. Uh, thank you, Daniel. So yeah, um, now we're just gonna talk a little bit about um, our experience. We wanna hear from you. If you have experiences you wanna share or questions about anything you've seen so far. Um, Philip, I don't know if you want to help moderate or uh, share what. So you guys should be able to see yeah. the questions on your screens just by clicking yep. the Q&A button. Uh, one question that's come up a lot in the chat, which is also here in the uh, open questions, is basically the questions of um, tutorials and where people can learn education. So Nate had the question, but also... Uh, Morgan put it into the chat somewhere. Um, also, guys, those that are watching, um, it really helps us if you put your questions into the Q&A box because it sorts them and then people can upvote them. But, but so where can people go if, um, to find resources if, they've, uh, if they're just new to this whole thing? Guys? Oh. I saw the question for Kansas was out there specifically, and I think that Kansas is oftentimes one of the ones people go to when they're looking to find a free solution for programming DMX for the first time because it's free and you've got that output on your laptop. Uh, the best resource I found for trying to train myself on it is honestly going to the manufacturer and going through their tutorials. 
oftentimes it's a little bit finicky when you're trying to go ahead and follow their technical writing, but they're going to be the ones who have the most expertise on it. And they usually put together some kind of guidelines on how to get started on it. And then once you've gotten started, I think the best way to go ahead and teach yourself and grow is to just start trying to do things. You're going to learn by picking a project you want to work on and starting checking the steps to solve the challenges that you face as you work through the software. It's not going to be, it's going to be always harder when you go ahead and wait until your haunt's being built to start programming for the first time. Instead, just take some time right now, win some downtime to go ahead and start putting together small offline projects that help you learn how to use the software so you're ready to go when it's time to go ahead and build your attraction. Um, I see a question that's about how much detail can you typically retain in a laser cut gobo. So I was shuffling through some gobos I have here. Now this is from a from a themed show uh, that was um, a Christmas story, and so we made a a like a lamp a leg lamp gobo for this show. This is a custom designed gobo that we had cut, um, and you can sort of see how small the lines are. This is laser cut, and I mean, the, the, the thickness of the, uh, the leggings uh, is less than a millimeter thick. So um, just to give you an idea of how precise the, the cutting and the shapes can be in a gobo when you, when you go to a manufacturer and have them cut a gobo. Um, yeah, I know Daniel and I have done a lot of gobo design over the year, um, which we've mostly done in 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 CAD. And I know Daniel, y'all y'all do more laser cutting now. Yep. So you you can can DIY all internally. Yeah, I mean there are companies out there that you can certainly go to and get a custom gobo for. And I don't know if this is going to sound like sticker shock or not, but you can get one for say $45. That's a custom design that you submit and they will cut it for you. Um, that is something that we're starting to do our, ourselves because we want to absorb the cost on our end and not have to go to uh, the Roscoe's of the world and give them all of our money for custom gobos. So now we're just starting to make our own gobos. Um, and that's something that we are sort of still figuring out how we want to do that. I think it's something that we'll start creating a catalog of our own sort of desired shapes and, and, and gobos. And uh, I think it's something we'd be interested in uh, developing a catalog if other people have custom gobos that they want made. But yeah, uh, certainly I think that um, there is a huge amount of stock gobos out there from different manufacturers. And it's certainly worth looking at those because they'll, they'll be about $10 to $15 a pop. Um, and certainly that is, there's a lot of ways to manipulate gobos without it necessarily need, needing to be a specific image. You can take something that's as simple as, you know, leaves and soften it and you get an interesting texture. Um, you don't have to always think of a gobo as being a sharp image, I guess is my point. Um, yeah. And I love the sort of natural gobos. I'm actually going to back up a little bit uh, if I can figure out how I work the slideshow. <laughs> um, this right here. Uh, part of why I, I like this picture so much, this is, this is from a, a haunt type um, event. And uh, this is, this is all just shining through the infrastructure in the ceiling and this sort of frame, um, which you can get really sharp patterns shining through stuff that's not in the proper gobo slot of, of your fixture. Um, I know, I, I actually think if you can pull off really, uh, 
cool patterns with your scenic elements, uh, that's almost, I won't say better, but like if your concern is making sure all of your lighting effects look like they belong in the space, they definitely belong in the space if you're already using your scenic pieces to create that kind of template. Um, so feel free to like have that steel infrastructure in your space that you're putting a light through. Like there's a lot you can do with what is already physically there um, with lighting. Uh, I'm going to jump in real quick so we can yeah. try and get some of these questions. Um, yep. Ryan has one about a difference between, is there a difference in approach for indoor versus outdoor lighting? And I think I want you all, you all to combine that with Buck's question, um, which basically is, um, what is the average cost to hire a lighting designer? Because I think totally. those two questions are yeah. related because it kind of depends on the scope of what you're doing, which is directly tied to indoor versus outdoor. <laughs> sure. I think with outdoor, I mean, so indoor lighting, uh, you kind of can get away with, with very little uh, meaning like you can use almost you know anything indoors from a coffee can to a professional fixture uh, when you get to outdoor lighting it's more complicated because you have to make sure that the fixtures are not going to be uh, damaged by by the outdoor elements um, so I mean typically I would I would suggest that you're using fixtures that are intended to be used outdoors which are more expensive um, but you can still get something from Home Depot and use it outdoors and that is meant to be outdoors and and, and still achieve uh, lighting outside. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges with lighting outside is that you're dealing with light, other light sources from outside. And obviously, you know, there's very little that a lighting designer can do during the daytime to combat the sun. So really what we're talking about is once the sun is going down and once it's set, um, you're still gonna be working with sources that are typically brighter than you would use indoor because there's a lot of ambient light outside. Um, Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in terms of the approach of design, though, it's all very similar. You're, where do you want your guests to look? Where, what do you want them to see? What's the story you're trying to tell? I would still be using color and gobos outside the same way I'd be using them inside. I think it just depends on what, what the experience is outside. If you're lighting a facade versus lighting a maze that's outside. Um, so it really just depends on what that story is that you're trying to tell. But certainly um, the instrumentation is going to be different for outside. Um, and that's definitely a, a consideration that you need to take uh, when you are budgeting for an event and you have outdoor lighting. Um, as for how much does it cost to hire a lighting designer? I don't want to speak for everyone on the panel. So, um, Andrew, I think, you know, you work more on a freelance, uh, capacity. So I think that the way you might, uh, the way you might determine your cost would be different than how we would determine it. Absolutely. Both of you guys work for LightSwitch, so you probably have a much different way of conducting your business. Whereas I'm freelance, I work on a different project every week and I go ahead and take on the projects that interest me or seem exciting to work on. And I often go ahead and just use a sliding scale for my rates based off of the scope and the size of the project. If I'm going to come in and do a two, three room of a, a sort of an experience, then it's going to be a whole lot, without a whole lot of programming, it'll be much cheaper than if I'm going to go ahead and spend a month on a project trying to go and actually build out a complex sequence. At the same time, I think that you shouldn't go ahead and limit yourself to just trying to go ahead and go with the expensive, go to go just with the established players in the industry. If you're looking for a designer and you've got a lower, smaller scale haunt, you might want to go ahead and start looking out at the same way that the three of us got started, people who are theatrical designers. 
look for college students who want to go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Look for students who want need more exposure, who are passionate about it, and who are going to be available to at likely a cheaper rate than someone who's already graduated and has a name for themselves. Because they're still being trained to go ahead and look at lighting critically and think about how to create an experience and a narrative. In this case, it's in a narrative that their audience can walk through. And I think that's a great great opportunity for them and a great resource for you as a haunt owner. I, I think for, for us, I mean, doing a haunted attraction is just fun. <laughs> so, like, I know that... Uh, in comparison to an architectural job, percent like the the amount of percentage of of income that we're going to want out of a job like that is is less than than for an, an architectural job. We will do a, a haunt job for less because it's just fun. Uh, something yeah. to consider is that what we I know what we would probably do is we probably would want something that is between ten and fifteen percent of the fixture budget to be our our fee. That's just an approximation. Obviously, if you're doing everything with coffee cans, it's a little bit different. But uh, if you've got a rental package, if you've got a a, a budget, uh, I would say think about 10 to 15 percent is going to be the design fee. And that's just because that's that's sort of the 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 amount of your fixture budget is sort of telling you how big is the job, how many fixtures are you working with, how much control does it require, and it's just sort of a rough approximation for how much of a design fee we're going to be looking for. I'm checking out the comment section and, and trying to, to make yeah. sure we get everyone. Um, so I think that covers at least service level. Again, I would always say, ask a designer, get a quote. Um, because it is, you know, it will always vary. It will always vary. Um, but don't, assume that it's out of the budget from the beginning. I would always ask. Um, you may be surprised with what you hear. I mean, obviously, you're going to save a lot of money by hiring someone local. I don't, I'm not sure if anyone's trying to hire someone that's not local, but Oops. keeping in mind, you know, hotels and flights and that kind of stuff, trying to limit totally. that kind of stuff will help. Yeah. And then since we are at time, I'm just going to real quickly, uh, for laser lighting, uh, Daniel or Jesse or Andrew, do you have a go-to laser? I know. Yeah. it's I don't. It's, it's tricky because there are so many restrictions on on lasers, um, just what class of laser you're using. Uh, I know um, GL, yeah, it, GLS has some good stuff, but uh, I wouldn't say I have a default that I've used. I don't at the moment. I, I, the, usually the, the environments that we have worked with, you haven't really had the ability to put a laser inside an indoor space because you want to make sure it's not hitting people in the eyes. Right, right. So you just get lasers are a special class of lighting that you have to be really careful about. Yeah. So that's um, almost, you might be hiring a laser designer sometimes when you're doing a project. Yeah. In addition to your lighting designer, I've done a lot of shows like that. Certainly um, we could do some, some research and get back to you on, yeah. on better, you know, uh, good options for laser lighting though. Totally. And then last question is about lighting rendering. Um, I know, Daniel, you've used Vectorworks uh, rendering program. MA yeah. also has an on-PC rendering program. That's very really good. Um, a lot of rendering programs either come with a lighting kind of CAD software or a console on-PC type software. Um, but you can also take, I mean, just brush up on Photoshop skills and take, mm -hmm. you know, photographs and then manipulate them in Photoshop. And that's how a lot of people do their renderings as yeah. well. That's probably the most effective and quickest way to do it. Um, it can take a good amount of time to properly model the spaces in three dimensions, like on the computer. Right. Um, and so sometimes that, that time, it just doesn't weigh out correctly. Like the amount of time it takes to do that is not worth the product you're getting in the end when 
you could get a very similar idea from doing Photoshop or, or something. Like and for both, for both cases, there are lots of tutorials online. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, we are at time. So thank you all so much for joining us. Okay, that's it for today. We'll see you back here on Monday for our regular news. If you found this useful and still have questions, of course, you can chat with Julia for free. Sign up at gantum.com slash demo. That's gantum.com slash demo. And don't forget that if you have a haunt that you want us to feature in our Hauntathon this year, reach out, contact us at our website, or shoot me an email. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope. Support for this episode comes from Gantam Lighting and Controls. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com demo. We release a free weekly industry newsletter. Sign up on our website or at the link in our show notes. The Haunted Attraction Network team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Maximus Bryant. Our partner stations include A Scott in the Dark, Scare Track, The Scare Factor, and Haunt Topic Radio. Finally, please, please, please rate and subscribe to our show wherever you're listening. And until next time, Haunters, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network.